You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 16th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, a meeting of two hardline minds as China's President Xi hosts Iran's Ibrahim Raisi. We'll examine the purpose and the products of their meeting. Also ahead. It's time to welcome Finland and Sweden as full members of NATO. In these dangerous times, it is even more important to finalise their accession. They promise to join NATO as a pair, but must Finland press ahead while Sweden waits behind? We'll ask what this means for both nations and for NATO itself. Plus... This claim will never be abandoned by this country because we feel this is our duty. Following a secret meeting, is Greece one step closer to reclaiming the Parthenon marbles from London? Plus, we'll hear about Austria's internal struggles with neutrality in the face of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the papers too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The president of the World Bank, David Malpass, is to step down a year early. Mr Malpass was criticised as a climate change denier. Lufthansa says services at Frankfurt Airport will return to normal today after workmen yesterday damaged broadband cables and caused check-in and boarding problems for thousands of passengers. And tributes have been paid to one of Hollywood's most glamorous actors, Raquel Welsh, who's died aged 82. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, what could two of the world's most hardline leaders possibly have to say to each other at a meeting? Well, Iran's President Ebrahim Raisi is in Beijing for a three-day trip to meet Xi Jinping. It's President Raisi's first state visit to China and the first trip of its kind by an Iranian president in two decades. China's promised investment and support, but what will it want in return? Well, I'm joined now by Steve Tsang, who's director of the China Institute at SOAS here in London and by Salam Bakil, who's Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House, also here in the UK. A very good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Salam, if I can start with you, just explain to us what was the purpose of, what is the purpose of, of President Raisi's visit? Uh, the three-day visit is uh, part of the bilateral uh, relations between uh, Tehran and Beijing. Uh, these relations are long-standing and have been very important uh, to both sides from a commercial, but also from a strategic perspective. Um, in 2020, Iran and China signed a 20-year uh, a- agreement that was supposed to result also in $400 billion of investment into Iran and the Iranian government um, that is beset with maximum pressure U.S. sanctions since the Trump admit- administration is very frustrated that the Chinese have not uh, injected as much um, investment in Iran and and Beijing is much more cautious about its engagement with Iran because of these sanctions. And that's one of the reasons for the visit. Um, Steve, just elaborate a little bit more about that, this cautiousness that China is feeling towards Iran. Um, It's an interesting state, isn't it? Because China feels under 
constant pressure from America. Uh, Iran is under sanctions from America. So you get that situation where it's my enemy's enemy is my friend. Well, there is certainly an element of that. And that certainly affects China's approach towards Iran. But the Chinese are not taking the pressure from the Americans sitting, lying down. The Chinese are trying to push back. And that is where I think the problem in the relationship with Iran comes up. China's basic foreign policy is driven by a China first principle. And in this relationship, in competition with the Americans, China will also think about relationships, say, with Saudi Arabia. And China is doing a lot to cultivate that relationship and get Saudi Arabia pivot away from the US to the Chinese side. And of course, you also have the calculations of oil prices, that Iranian oils are now more expensive than Russian ones for the Chinese, and therefore affects the uh, Chinese commitments to fulfill all these promises made to Iran previously. So, Sanam, this leaves Iran very much further along in the queue than perhaps it would like to be. Yes, uh, it, China has um, definitely uh, made a very important trip to Riyadh in December. Um, as part of that trip, it engaged very broadly with all of the uh, Gulf Arab states. It made uh, a very surprising statement from Iran's side um, about uh uh, island dispute in the Persian Gulf between the UAE and Saudi Ra- and Iran, um, suggesting that that dispute should be resolved, and that was um, taken quite badly in Tehran. So uh, this trip and Raisi, the Iranian president who um, hasn't traveled abroad, is uh, sanctioned for human rights abuses, and after four five months of protests inside Iran, sees this trip as really important to deliver uh, economic as well as uh, these strategic um, objectives uh, for for uh, a state that has been uh, very much um, publicly uh, humiliated in the international community. Um, Steve, just talk to us a little bit more about the fact that the the big headline that's coming out of this meeting isn't about investment and it isn't about an alliance in the face of of, of sort of mutual foes. It's a call by President Xi for the Iran nuclear deal to be resurrected and to be put back in, 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 into action, something which the Americans now desperately want to happen after Donald Trump had withdrawn it, drawn it. What's China's role in this? Well, the Chinese government is projecting itself as having played a much more significant role in the uh, Western deal with Iran over the nuclear uh, program. And since they didn't actually do very much, and since the deal wasn't going anywhere and uh, before Raisi's visit to Beijing, Xi Jinping can actually make big promises and say that we will do something about this. That puts him in a strong moral position um, without necessarily having to pay any price for it. Because if it doesn't happen, then China can blame it on the Americans and the Europeans. Europeans will not doing what is needed to uh, revive the deal. And Sanam, how much will Raisi listen to those calls from President Xi? Well, uh, for Iran, having China um, at least rhetorically talk about the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, and it is important. 
We seem to have lost Sanam there, so I'll uh, I'll return to Steve. Um, Steve, just tell us a little bit about the the characters of those of those two men. We have President Xi, who's obviously unafraid to sort of lead the way in terms of the the narrative that he wants to push. But these are two men who are not afraid to take a very hard line view on their people. But do we know what kind of personal relationship these two men have, if indeed they have one? Well, I am not aware that they have a particularly uh, strong personal relationship, uh, not like between Xi Jinping and Putin, where there is genuine uh, mutual admiration for each other. And Xi Jinping would be very much aware that even though uh, Raisi is the president of the Iranian Republic, he is not the supreme leader in Iran in the way that Xi Jinping is the supreme leader in China. So he will accept that, that formally Raisi is his opposite number, but he's not necessarily accepting him as his equal. Sadam, returning to you, I think we have you back. Um, yes. We were talking about um, a 20-year agreement, a $400 billion uh, investment that, that, that was supposed to be happening with China and in, into Iran. And there was this issue, isn't there, about the, the Chinese investment into Iran and the words Belt and Road always come in. What role or what can what can Iran get from China that could help its economy when it's under such tight sanctions? Uh, well, um, this is where I was cut off earlier. I think that the rhetorical support that um, Beijing is lending to the Iran nuclear agreement is important. Um, while um, Iran has been under um, protests as well, um, it has been harder for the international community uh, to think about publicly engaging with uh, the Islamic Republic. Uh, it has Tehran has brutally repressed its people. Um, alongside that, it chose to send unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, to support uh, Moscow in its war against Ukraine. And this decision as well has made it, um, again, uh, a bit more challenging for Western states to sit down with Iran over its nuclear program. So Beijing's role in elevating the JCPOA is important. And should there be a a return to diplomacy, this would suit Tehran as well as Beijing because the lifting of sanctions and the arrival or revival of uh, the JCPOA would be important to reinvigorate um, Chinese investment back into Iran. Chinese companies are quite cautious about investing and circumventing U.S. sanctions, and that is the biggest obstacle. Steve, the, the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, is, is far from revived fully. It is beset with problems. So if the nuclear deal fails, what does China do with Iran? Does it continue to invest? Does it have any Belt and Road interest in Iran? Or is it just a, another country which doesn't necessarily figure enormously in its agenda? Um, actually, Iran does figure in China's agenda. Uh, Iran does matter. It may matter a bit less at the moment than Russia or the uh, Saudi Arabia and some of the uh, Arabic states for the moment. But overall, uh, China does want to have a good, strong relationship with Iran. It just does not necessarily want to uh, deliver on all its promises if the delivery of the promises don't advance China's own interests, both strategic as well as economic. 
Steve Sang and Sanam Bakil, thank you both so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Globalist. Nine twelve in Helsinki, seven twelve here in London. Now, pressure for Finland to go it alone when it comes to joining NATO is growing. The country had previous pledged, previously pledged to join the military alliance only alongside its neighbour Sweden. Sweden's bid, however, has faced a block from Turkey. Ankara has accused Sweden of harbouring Kurdish activists and allowing a Quran to be burnt in front of Turkey's embassy in the Swedish capital. So. Could Finland now be forced to join NATO alone? Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Petri Burtsov, who's Monocle's correspondent in Helsinki, and by Elizabeth Braw, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Regular listeners will also know that Elizabeth is Swedish. Uh, a very good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Petri, could we begin with you? This, this story about Finland possibly going it alone, this broke in a local tabloid, didn't it? Well, you know, it's something that's been uh, brewing underneath the surface for for quite a while, um, ever since uh, Turkish uh, President Erdogan said that uh, in a in a televised speech that he might um, approve Finland's uh, NATO bid. Uh, to send a to sort of to send a message to to Sweden that was between the lines. So you know uh, that sparked quite an intense debate in Finland about you know whether Finland should uh, go about it alone or wait for Sweden. And um, you know so so far pretty much all the key politicians, all the key ministers, president, prime minister, all say that Finland and Sweden should go together. Um, you know, Defense Minister Savola was asked yesterday at the NATO summit in Brussels if, if Finland should go go uh, t- um, join NATO if it's possible without Sweden. He said, absolutely not. We will wait for Sweden. But then uh, opinion polls show that actually majority of Finns do uh, support Finland joining before Sweden if that is the only way to join. So so it's it's quite an intense debate at the moment. So Petri, this story is arguably pushing the narrative when the politicians aren't quite ready to jump. Yeah, absolutely. And and what makes it interesting, of course, is that most of the most of Finnish politicians were against NATO when public opinion was strongly against it. And then when the public opinion turned, then the politicians' opinions turned. So it's interesting to see now that the public opinion seems to have seems to be slightly in favor of going going about it alone um, whether or not politicians will then then sort of join the public opinion especially given that Finland has uh, general elections in 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 April uh, Elizabeth turning to you the the situation for Sweden with regards to its issues with Turkey who is stop who are stopping um the Swedes from joining NATO it must have got to a pretty bad state that it's actually raised this argument that Finland might split off from the Swedish bid. Yes, it has, and it, it, it's it seems to be an intractable situation uh, at the moment with uh, Turkey, or specifically President Erdogan, having made specific demands. Then uh, Sweden and Finland fulfilling those demands, and Sweden in particular, because that's that's what it really was about all along. And then President Erdogan, after that happened, saying, "Well, hang on, what about this?" And then, un- unfortunately, uh, these uh, activists came along uh, and. Uh, burned the Quran and then uh, some other activists um, 
uh, hung, hanged an effigy of, of Erdogan himself uh, in Stockholm. So, so those activists have really played into the hands of of Erdogan and and whoever else is trying to oppose this bid. But uh, the the reality, the 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 bottom line is that Sweden is in a really difficult position now. And and I, so Sweden and Finland have have said all along that they they'll uh, they'll join together, but uh, with the door being open for for Finland, but not for Sweden. It's it's impossible to see how Finland can then refuse to to walk through that open door, uh, and 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 still wait for for Sweden and and, and an uncertain future in 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 the waiting room. Petri, do we believe that Finland will walk through that open door that Elizabeth has just mentioned? Ah, uh, that's a t- that's a tough question. I think it also depends a lot on on the timing. Uh, at yesterday's NATO summit. Um, Pretty much all the participant countries stressed that Finland and Sweden should be members before the Vilnius summit, which takes place, I believe, in 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 July. Uh, Hungary has already signaled that it would probably uh, ratify both NATO uh, bids in in the coming weeks. So you know, if if we um, in a couple of weeks' time are in a situation where uh, Hungary has already um, ratified the NATO bids and Turkey is the only one that hasn't then you know there is there is immense political pressure on Erdogan then to to uh, to make up his his mind about it and what what even complicates this further is of course the the earthquake in Turkey which um, as far as i understand from turkish media is pretty much every you know everything that um, the politicians are talking about so this is really a second tier issue in in turkey which kind of suggests that it, that they, they won't make up their minds anytime soon Elizabeth, what does this say about the exposure of any deep divisions within NATO itself? As Petra just said, the earthquake in Turkey has added a further wrinkle to this uh, by obviously taking Erdogan's attention away from from Sweden and Finland uh, to to the very real problem uh, in, in Turkey at the moment. Now, Sweden has very helpfully sent aid including um military aid uh, to turkey uh, so one would think that that would put Erdogan in a good mood then on the other hand he could also be so distracted by the earthquake that he doesn't have time to to think any in, any further about uh, the swedish and finnish nato bid uh, so we, we don't really know how that will play out um, um but as you say, Emma, time is short. Now, what needs to be done in that time is not very much. It's just for the Turkish uh, parliament to, to convene and ratify these bids. Um, but uh, if, if Erdogan still has to, to get his mind around Sweden joining or how he's going to position his, himself vis-a-vis Sweden, it will take more than, than uh, one sitting of the Turkish parliament. So it, it's very unclear what what will happen in these next few months but i think what is clear is that the the delay in hungary is is uh, that's that's the easy part and the easy part is also finland uh, the difficult part is whether erdogan will decide that that he is satisfied with the measures sweden has taken to to uh, uh keep turkey safe from from the, the Kurdish uh, individuals uh, who are in Sweden, which is what, what this problem is about. Indeed, staying with you, Elizabeth, what is it that Sweden actually has to do to get Turkey to change its mind? Is it is it a job that's for Sweden alone or is this something that NATO could help with? It's a job that's for Sweden alone. Now, it goes back to to the 70s. Uh, I, I think some of your... Uh, 
uh, your listeners may have been alive in the 70s, but in the 70s and, and uh, early 80s, uh, there was a prime minister called Olof Palme, fa- famous for then having been uh, assassinated, but he uh, was famously uh, uh, neutral, or he, he famously pursued this this policy of neutrality for Sweden, which included uh, the, the ability to, to receive uh, asylum seekers from all kinds of wars around the world when other countries were, were uh, careful not to or didn't didn't want to that actively actively receive asylum seekers from from wars that that uh, were politically complicated. Sweden did receive such asylum seekers, and they included uh, Kurdish activists. And uh, Sweden has had a large Kurdish uh, community ever since, including a number of people who have been politically extremely active, and that is what aggravates uh, Erdogan and Sweden promised in in the declaration or in the agreement that it and Finland and Turkey signed uh, in the summer that it would work with Turkey on uh, the the cases where uh, the the Kurdish individuals are are being sought by Turkey for uh, crimes and Sweden says he has done it has done that uh, meaning uh, probably provided Turkey with information now Turkey presumably means Delivering them to Turkey, extraditing them to Turkey, uh, but that was not specified in the in the memorandum uh, or the MOU. So, so that's where we are. And Erdogan seems to add more things that he wants Sweden to do, uh, but as the months go by, and that is the complication. And Sweden can't very well say, uh, "Hang on, we we have done what what you said we should do. Now you have to ratify." That's that's not how politics works. Petri, just going back to the relationship between Finland and. Sweden. Fin- it is being reported that Sweden has, has given its permission for Finland to go it alone. Uh, Finland, as you mentioned up until, until now, has pledged that patience is the way forward and that it still wishes to join as one with Sweden. What does this situation do for the relationship between the two countries? Uh, well, as as you said, the relationship is very close, especially in terms of defense. Finland and Sweden um, cooperate in defense issues um, on an unprecedented level. But then I think one should also consider, I think bo- the population both in Finland and Sweden are um, very painfully aware of Finland's history with Russia, you know, two very bloody wars, um, two um, attempts to invade um, Finland and then the whole sort of Finlandization period during the Soviet Soviet times, plus the fact that Finland has a long, uh, one of the longest land borders with Russia in all of all of Europe and Sweden doesn't have a border with Russia. So I think there is a general understanding that Finland is really sort of, uh, how, how to put it po- <laughs> diplomatically, perhaps more threatened in this situation than, than, than Sweden. So I think people do understand that. But then, you know, it's about also, um, as you said, the partnership between the two countries. And, and then if Finland were to join without Sweden, Sweden would be the only country in Northern Europe that is not a NATO member. Um, and it would, it would definitely leave Sweden more exposed and, and also, diplomatically speaking, more, more alone. So it's definitely not a good message to send. Petri Burtsov and Elizabeth Braw, thank you both for joining us on The Globalist. Still to come. This claim will never be abandoned by this country because we feel this is our duty. We'll get the latest on secret talks to find a solution to one of the world's bitterest bitterest cultural disputes, the fate of the Parthenon marbles. This is A Globalist.
CBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. in Athens. Now there is a gap and it's a considerable one in the Acropolis Museum in Athens. It's waiting to be filled by the strip of the Parthenon marbles currently on display here at the British Museum in London. It's a long narrative strip portraying parts of the procession of the festival celebrating the birthday of the goddess Athena. Or the long narrative of Greece's attempts to oblige the UK to return the marbles has taken a step forward with Greece's Prime Minister and the current chair of the British Museum, George Osborne, exploring a potential deal. Well, I'm joined now by George Parker, political editor at the Financial Times, who's recently written about this. A very good morning to you, George. Morning. Now, this all stems from secret talks apparently held between the the Prime Minister of Greece and the the chair of the British Museum. Not so secret now. No. Well, they've they've held two rounds of uh, of talks in London at the Barclay Hotel in in Mayfair, which is the hotel favoured by Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the Greek Prime Minister, when he's in London. First one was in November 21 and then followed up a year later. And basically what they're talking about is a, a really interesting way to try and break the deadlock in the world's longest running cultural dispute, which is where should the so-called Elgin marbles, officially called the Parthenon sculptures, be located? Uh, and they've come up with a halfway house, or at least George Osborne's offered the, the possibility of a halfway house, where this is a sort of cultural exchange where the British Museum sends part of the sculptures back to Athens in exchange for some Greek treasures coming the other way. And gradually over time, as trust builds up, more and more of the marbles head in the other direction. Now, your article called it the, one of the world's bitterest political and cultural disputes. This is, I mean, this dates back, obviously, since the, since parts of the Parthenon marbles were, were hacked from the Acropolis um, at the, uh, by, uh, by, by, by Lord Elgin. Um, how much damage has it actually done to Greek-British to, to Greek relations? Well, it's been a running sore for the best part of 200 years. And, um, you know, you described the way in which the marbles were removed. Um, Lord Byron, the the romantic poet was one of the biggest critics of the way this was handled at the time. And uh, someone was saying in, in the in the article I wrote was saying that the Greeks have had better PR ever since Lord Byron. And I think that's probably true. But no, it's been a it's been a long standing issue. Every time a Greek and British prime minister meets, the subject of the Parthenon sculptures comes up. Um, and it has undermined uh, trust and confidence for sure. So now we have a very interesting situation where we have a prime minister um, and we have the former chancellor of the Exchequer here in the United Kingdom, who's now chair of the British Museum, George Osborne, getting on well as two men sitting in a room. And one wonders, well, I think uh, the prime minister of Greece said we can we have a chance to make history here. One wonders how much personal ego is involved in this. <laughs> well, there's always an ego in politics and yeah, that's the reason I was particularly interested in this story because it's so political. It's politics in its rawest form, really. And the two, the two of them get on well. They both come from similar backgrounds. And you said George Osborne was a former Chancellor of the Exchequer. Mr. Tuckers was a worked in London. He worked for 
worked for um, Goldman Sachs, I think, or McKinsey's rather. And um, they both were roughly the same age, technocratic. And yeah, I mean, look, they both see a chance to make history here, to solve a conundrum which has basically bedeviled relations as we were discussing for 200 years, and where a solution at least does seem to be sort of coming into view. What's interesting, though, is that cynical commentators might suggest that George Osborne would quite like to seize a little bit of light in the in in the current melee of British politics. What would you say to that? Well, that's true. I mean, I was speaking to someone in the in the sort of cultural world in London who said that George Osborne couldn't resist the drama. You know, the Greek Prime Minister's motorcade turns up, the blue lights are flashing, and George sees his chance to be back on on the stage. I think there's a bit of that. I think the other thing, of course, is that George Osborne now is running, you know, a huge institution. It's not, you know, it's not the Chancellor Exchequer, but the British Museum is one of the biggest cultural uh, centres in the world. It attracts huge numbers of visitors. He's also in charge of a massive £1 billion restoration of the museum. So he needs to raise money. And if he can somehow solve this conundrum, I'm sure it will make the fundraising that little bit easier for him. There is a few, well, there is one rather large um uh, grain of sand in the ointment, which is the 1963 Act of Parliament, which stops the British Museum from actually giving the marbles back. Yeah, I mean, this is what makes it a fascinating story, really, because it, it's a, this negotiation is taking place between the Greek government and the British Museum. It's not the, a government-to-government negotiation. And that's because the the sculptures are belong, um, this is contested by the Greeks, of course, but belong in law in the UK to the British Museum. And as you mentioned, there's an Act of Parliament which prevents them permanently transferring the sculptures abroad. And so what George Osborne has been proposing is the idea of some sort of loan deal, where instead of permanently transferring them, the British Museum might send, for example, a third of the sculptures to Athens. In exchange, some Greek treasures would come back in return. And if the Greeks returned the first tranche of sculptures to the British Museum, then a larger chunk of them would be sent to Athens the next time. And gradually over over the years, you might get to a situation where 50% of the sculptures were in Athens, in that beautiful museum in the Acropolis that you just mentioned, and 50% were in London. So you'd have a chance to see them in both museums. Well, that, that is the thing, isn't it? That, that 50% is something that the Greeks will never be happy with. That beautiful museum that you just described at the foot of the Acropolis has this gaping hole in it that is screaming... The British Museum, send our stuff back now. It is something that the Greeks will never let go of. No, I mean, the Greeks, and um, Mitsotakis has said this deal is not acceptable to him, and it may be that it remains unacceptable to him. There are some elections coming up in April or May in Greece, after which I think this will come back to the fore, and we'll see whether a compromise is, is possible. Um, you know, it, accept, it, forced, it would require the Greeks to accept that the, the marbles will be or sculptures will be housed at the British Museum for the foreseeable future, or at least some of them. That's a very tough pill for the Greek government to swallow. So it may be that this won't happen. But as people say, it's the closest we've come to a solution to this problem for 200 years. And it would allow, and this is, I think, the interesting historical point here, that people in the British Museum would say, in the British Museum, the Parthenon sculptures are seen in the context of world history, because it's you can see them alongside the uh, the Roman 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 works that came after it and how they fitted in what came before, whereas if they're in Athens, they're part of Greek or Athenian history. So, you know, in a way, would it be a nice solution to see them in both contexts, a sort of Greek history, Greek context, and historical context? Now, that's a very British Museum perspective on the whole thing, but that's that's the way it's being sold. 
George Parker, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. The time here in London is 7.31am. In a moment, we'll be heading to Austria to examine the neutrality issues that Vienna is struggling with at the moment. But first, a quick summary of some of today's other news headlines. The president of the World Bank, David Malpass, is to step down a year early. Mr Malpass was the choice of the former US president, Donald Trump. He was criticised as a climate change denier. No reason has been given for his departure. Hundreds of residents in Ohio have gathered to demand answers about a toxic spill that's followed a train derailment in the small town of East Palestine. Residents say they're concerned about health dangers caused by crews draining and burning off a dangerous chemical from tanker cars. Officials say air and water quality is still testing normal. Lufthansa says services at Frankfurt Airport will return to normal today after thousands of passengers were left stranded and flights were cancelled or delayed across the world on Wednesday. More than 200 flights were cancelled after construction workers damaged broadband cables and caused check-in and boarding problems for the German airline Lufthansa. And tributes have been paid to one of Hollywood's most glamorous actors, Raquel Welsh, who's died aged 82. The Golden Globe winner became an international sex symbol in the 1960s after playing a bikini-clad cavewoman in the film One Million Years BC. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. in Vienna, which is where we head now. Neutrality was a condition of Austria gaining independence after the Second World War. It's enshrined in its constitution. But since Russia invaded Ukraine, there's been renewed debate about it. And in the meantime, Austria's defence ministry has seen its budget massively increase to a total of 16 billion euros until 2026. Well, to explain everything, Monocle's correspondent in the Austrian capital, Alexei Korolev, sent us this report. Austrian President Alexander van der Bellen, speaking in Kiev two weeks ago. Austria will always stand with Ukraine, he said. But he was also careful to mention something else. Österreich is a neutral land. Militärische Neutralität bedeutet aber nicht. Austria is neutral and will not help militarily. It's uh, like a coward would act. You're being protected by the others, but officially you're saying you're neutral. Christian Bomer is an editor at the Austrian daily Der Courier. In a recent column, he asked if Austria should rethink its neutrality. In the Cold War, we said, OK, we're in between. There are two blocks, uh, the Americans and the Russians, and we're in between. They, they won't harm us because they have bigger interests. But the interesting thing about this is that the other part, meaning that we have to be able to defend ourselves, this one is not so popular in Austria. In fact, uh, we, we didn't think much about it because, um, to say it quite plainly, we thought, well, we're in between the big countries, we're surrounded by friends. That's why we did not spend much money on our military. And now the, the war in Ukraine brings up this question again. But in Austria, you know, um, we spend a lot of money on, on schools and social welfare and other very important things. So it was and it still is quite unpopular to invest in, in arms, basically. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, that's the case. Yeah. Neutrality may be enshrined in the Austrian constitution, Article 23J to be exact, but there's a little-known legal loophole. 
My name is Christoph Schwarz. I'm a research fellow at the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy. I think what, what many people in Austria are not aware of is that when Austria joined the EU, it also changed its constitutional law in reference to neutrality, which means that um, when it comes to activities of the EU, where Austria is a member of, Austrian neutrality law does not apply anymore. In practical terms, this means that Austria could send lethal aid to Ukraine without infringing its neutral status. But as Christoph Schwarz explains, that is not likely to happen anytime soon. I'm somebody who thinks that, especially if you think about the dramatic changes that have been happening in the world, that there would be an urgency to also rethink Austria's security and defense policy. But if, if you look at what politicians have been saying uh, over the past months since the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, there is really no willingness to engage the topic um, in any sense. So in May of last year, shortly after the outbreak of the war, the Austrian Chancellor Karl Nehammer said um, Austria was, is and will remain neutral. And that's the end of the debate. Um, neutrality was not embraced with open arms from the very first day, but Austrians grew to, to like it and enjoy its benefits very much. And I think Austria got pretty comfortable being um, safely nested into the EU and not have to deal with, with questions of foreign policy so much anymore. Neutrality is considered an essential part of Austrian national identity, and initiatives to drop it have so far come to nothing. But as the war in Ukraine continues, attitudes and legal frameworks may yet change. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. And our thanks to Monocle's Vienna, Vienna correspondent Alexei Korolev there. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. Now, let's have a look at today's newspapers. I am delighted to say that joining me in the studio is Latika Burke, journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and a regular voice here on the station. Hello, Latika. It's Emma, so good it's to have you. always around. a delight to see you Always too. good. Right, so we're starting off with a good spring in our step. Um, but we've, we were just saying just before we came back on air that um, the news is pretty boring at the moment. Now, is, it, is that something we'll sort of look to be relieved with? I mean, boring is, is relative because we do have the catastrophic conflict in Ukraine <laughs> yes. that we're having to handle. And that's one of the things that you want to talk about. Yeah, and I think that's reflective one year on from almost uh, from the beginning of the invasion and what a year that really did signalling news. And it does feel like the tempos come down a bit, which might concern, of course, the Ukrainians who would be very uh, interested in, in Ukraine being top of the news for as long as this war is, is ongoing. And that's certainly the case today because the IISS, a very good uh, think tank um, down at Temple, have released their global military balance, which is basically a, a catalogue of what they have calculated and estimated to the best of their, their sourcing and knowledge of all the, the world's military capabilities. And they have found that since the invasion, Russia has lost about half of its battle tanks. And you might remember, Emma, um, when the war began, there was all of that 
uh, quite extraordinary, but also at many times comical footage that the Ukrainians were releasing of themselves towing away abandoned or destroyed or disrupted Russian tanks. And then, of course, uh, taking them over themselves. So they'll they'll paint over the Z and rework them and then turn that fire back on the Russians, which is just one of the many, many ways that Ukrainian innovation has impressed uh, its allies and, and allowed the, the supply of more stocks. So the IISS says that even though Russia has lost half of its tank capability, they have such a stockpile Um, Granted, not all of it's great kit. Uh, A lot of this is Soviet era now, but it means they're still able to dip into that stockpile. And they have estimated that they uh, predict another bloody year on the battlefield and uh, perhaps up to 200,000 lives lost uh, on either side. So it it doesn't uh, spell um, a loss of consequence in terms of bringing this war to an end. But it certainly is a good number to have out there at the start of uh, one year on. Indeed, it's it's an astonishing thought to think that, and and this is being borne out in the article in The Guardian that you're bringing to our attention, is that Russian troops had anticipated being welcomed in Ukraine. They were far from suggesting that they were going to have to dip into the Cold War reserves. But it says two things, perhaps arguably, that Russia was not as prepared as it thought it was. But secondly, Russia is in it for the long term here. Yes, and I think the UK Defence Intelligence Agency actually puts out this information very well and and lately they've been talking about how the Russians have been making gains of 100 metres per day or per week and it doesn't sound like much but it is an advance and you get 10 of those and suddenly they've they've created another kilometre in the front line. But in the Times today, there is also this discussion amongst uh, NATO um, uh, defence ministers who met this week, uh, saying that for every 100 metres gained, the Russians are losing 2,000 lives. It's a huge price to pay. But again, we have to keep in mind that Putin has this these lives to spend. He does not care about the loss of life, uh, according to the Western officials who who brief heavily on this subject, in the same way that the Ukrainians or we might. And so there really is, uh, that in itself is no deterrent to making these small and tiny and, and very costly in terms of human life gains. Let's move on to the story which is uh, dominating a lot of the papers here in the United Kingdom and is making headlines around the world as well. Um, Nicola Sturgeon, a perpetual thorn in the side of Westminster, um, leader of the Scottish National Party, champion of independence or hoping for an independent Scotland, has effectively yesterday thrown in the towel. Yes, and there's no doubt about it. Whatever way you look at her politics, she is an absolute titan of British and Scottish politics. I mean, she has dominated Scotland. She has made the SNP uh, the most popular party in Scotland for, for so long and came quite close to leading it to independence, but not close enough. And really, that's at the very heart of this. And she announces her resignation quite surprisingly, but not not after, you know, there, there has been a lot of pressure on Sturgeon to go. There's been a lot of infighting, a lot of leaking against her. So we knew this was coming to a head, that it would come to a head yesterday morning at the time uh, she announced her departure. No, nobody was necessarily expecting that yesterday. And she herself was very emotional as she announces her retirement. And I have to say, 
um, full full credit to her. She has left with the self-awareness that she she says she is no longer the person that can lead Scotland to independence and acknowledges that she herself had become a very polarising figure. Now, I brought to picked out the Telegraph's copy today on this story because they have gone for the most politically charged lead here, which is that they believe she's been brought down over, quote, her radical approach to transgender rights, end quote. And this refers to the law that's since been vetoed by Westminster, but that would have allowed 16-year-olds to self-identify on their gender without consulting a doctor. Now, that, of course, has caused... There's a huge furious row about this, obviously, in the public. Um, And now party sources in the SNP have told The Telegraph they expect this to be dropped like a hot potato, get it off the front pages and move on. So we'll we'll see whether that is actually the reason, but I do feel like that might be the, the straw uh, rather than the load on the camel's back. Indeed. The, the load had been coming for some time. Absolutely, and this is what the, she said. I mean, the description of her of how political life in the last 10 years has become brutal. Um, born out, uh, you go for the telegraph. The bit that I've spotted up was CNN uh, highlighted <laughs> Uh, the fact that one of the most that Nicola Sturgeon was involved in one of the world's most entertaining political feuds, namely between her and Donald Trump, um, she said goodbye, and then Donald Trump said, uh, "Good riddance to a leader who's a failed woke extremist and a crazed leftist, ridiculing her over a controversy over transgender rights law that you just spoken about." Um, she had called. Uh, but he'd, she'd made Trump cheerio with a vernacular equivalent of good riddance, don't haste ye back when he was um, when when he left office. And it was all to do with a, a row over a golf course, wasn't it? Do you think it's something to do with them being redheads? I have no idea. Fiery, but, fiery gingers. That was it. But I think this is the fact that um, he was trying to uh, block the construction of a wind farm yes. that was supposed to be near the coast of his golfing, uh, of his golfing resort. Um, it's one of those arguments that she it's it's the departure of a very very strong leader that's 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 for sure oh and it could be really the end of an era and who knows what this means for the SNP I mean she the SNP for so many people has been Nicola Sturgeon it also suggests and this has been written as well in the last 24 hours that that Nicola Sturgeon, in her in her singular adherence to right to to, to issues such as end of Scottish independence um she belongs arguably to a part of political history in Britain which is perhaps becoming just that, history, insofar as the polemicist, the, the firebrands, the single issue, the, the Boris Johnsons of this world who would, who would you know, thump a tub um, at any cost. And there's been a suggestion that perhaps, and many would say welcome, British politics might be cooling down a little. Moderation is back in fashion. Possibly. A- Amen. Emma. Dare I Amen. say it? Dare I say it? And for someone who covers it quite closely, what what would you say? To that? Look, I do think I do think we're seeing more more moderates come back into power. You're seeing that obviously in the United States, where Biden has calmed things. You're seeing that in Australia as well, where Labor was elected and and is running a much more centrist government. I think you're definitely seeing that in Rishi Sunak, who has em- embraced boredom. Um, and it's <laughs> it's no bad thing, really. It's no bad thing. I think. We as a public and certainly we in the media have become very, very used and perhaps addicted to the chaos of the last decade. Um, and that is a, is a destructive thing, I think. And, and we've got to be, I mean, sometimes I pine for those days of the 90s where I grew up thinking, gosh, the world's a bit boring and I'm going to be a journalist. 
roll on 20 years later and here we are. Latika Burke, ready to have a good night's sleep, I hope, after <laughs> a few years of turmoil. Thank you so much for joining Thank us on Monocle24. You at The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's talk business now with Helen Morrissey, Senior Pensions and Retirement Analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Good morning, Helen. Morning. Right, you want to begin with Elon Musk. Tell us what he's been doing now. Yeah, yeah. So always up to lots of different things. But um, today he's been talking about AI and its risks to society. So speaking um, at an event quite recently, he called AI one of the biggest risks to the future of civilization. Um, now, and he's calling on it to be regulated. So he says the development, he was talking about ChatGPT, which has been all over the news um, at the moment. And he was saying how it shows how advanced AI has become and that it is something that we should all be worried about. But the interesting thing here is that Musk is the co-founder of OpenAI, which is the startup that actually developed ChatGPT, um, even though he's no longer involved with, with, with that company. So um, just to, to recap, ChatGPT is a, is a tool which... Um, which speaks in the most human-like way, which has which has thus been created. It's a, it has a large language model, doesn't it? Which is programmed to understand and understand human language, and generate responses based on enormous bodies of data. What is Elon Musk so worried about having actually created this? Yeah, I think it's quite. I think it's quite interesting. So he's just saying that it, it's its development needs to be regulated, and and he's spoken about this, you know, um, over a period of time. So he once actually said artificial intelligence is far more dangerous. He said even the nuclear warheads. Um, now I think the interesting thing with ChatGPT is that, as you say, it is so incredibly powerful, and the responses that it generates. I think there's kind of been a lot of concern about you know, its potential to kind of impact the job market over the coming years um, because, you know, there are maybe like certain jobs that, that you know, that people are currently doing now that something like this technology could be harnessed to, to, to do in future. So it has the potential to kind of, you know, massively change the way that we live our lives. Which is a, an unusual uh, approach to take given the fact that the first thing you did at Twitter was to get rid of lots and lots of people, uh, which is what AI is going to hope is <laughs> or what is thought to be replacing uh, lots of uh, lots of workers. Now, um, let's move on to a story about uh, Brentag, a company which has founded more than a century, almost a century and a half ago, as an egg trader in Berlin, um, has become uh, an enormous uh, player in a very large breakup of a big company. Yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, we're seeing kind of activist investors renewing their efforts to try and break up some of Germany's most long-standing companies. And, you know, as you say, Brentag, um, founded in 1874, you know, a huge company, starts out life, as you say, um, in eggs. It's now a big chemical distributor. 
they've become the latest target of these investors who are calling for it to spin off its specialties unit. Now, they're the latest in a string of companies, including Bayer, uh, ThyssenKrupp as well. They've seen similar demands to release value from these investors. Now, I think what it is is that you know, many of these were founded in the 19th century. They're enormous corporations that have accumulated a lot of businesses um, over the years. And I think the viewers that they've been they've become quite unwieldy. Now, these investors see streamlining as a good route to like reviving share prices, um, you know, particularly as Germany looks to emerge from the energy crisis. You know, Germany's um, index you know, did put in the worst performance of any major European stock market over the past year. It only rose 2%. So I think the view here is that if we could get some streamlining of some of these big companies, you know, it could revive fortunes. OK, let's move to KPMG. It is uh, cutting stock. Yes, yeah, so they're the latest um, you know, big company, the first of the big four accountancy firms to announce that they're looking to cut staff. And this is in the US. Now, we believe it's going to be close to 2% of its workforce. This is according to reports in the FT. Um, and they joined several other financial firms who've slashed jobs in recent months. So we've seen major, you know, Wall Street banks doing it, asset managers, fintechs. And again, you know, this is amid a very kind of turbulent macroeconomic environment, you know, consumers um, who have been put under a lot of pressure during this ongoing cost of living crisis, you know, soaring inflation. And so we believe that these cuts at KPMG could affect close to 700 people. And what what effect will that have on, on KPMG in, in, in sort of like the wider accounting uh, big four? Because it's what's it's um, Anson Young, Deloitte, KPMG and PricewaterhouseCoopers. Does that, will that in, in, allow it KPMG to become more lean or is it to keep up with the others? Um, it's, it's an interesting one because when I was reading the reports, they were saying that I think there's maybe some parts of their business that grew very, very quickly in recent years that haven't been able to sustain that growth and that that could be one of the reasons why they're looking to cut these 700 people. Um, but I do feel that, you know, even though reports of recession, you know, have been kind of you know, watered down a little bit over recent months, I think there's such a, a, a big kind of, you know, look towards real belt tightening and um, people don't want don't know, you know quite how bad things are going to get so they're looking to kind of plan as much as possible and so i think that we will see you know further job cuts coming you know whether that be at these big four accountancy firms or across the or across the board helen morrissey thank you so much for joining us on the globalist on monocle 24 Finally, India gets its first museum in a decade this week with the opening of the Museum and Art of Art and Photography in Bangalore. And joining me from Bangalore is Abhishek Pada, who's the founder of the Museum, museum and Art of Art and Photography in Bangalore. Um, Abhishek, I should do your museum a little bit more service by being able to pronounce it correctly. Um, it opens this week. Welcome to, to Monocle 24. How are you feeling? Thank you for having me here. I'm feeling great and looking forward to the opening very much. So, Matt, and I'll make it easier for you. You can just call it Map. I'm delighted you say that. You gave me permission to do that. So, Map, tell us a little bit about it. 
So this is a new museum opening in Bangalore. In fact, it would be um, possibly one of the only museums open in the recent past in India. And it spans about 2000 years of Indian history and culture. We've tried to break the hierarchies between what is considered as high art and low art by putting it all on one plane. So you would have, I mean, we've got six departments, right, from the classical historical art to modern and contemporary art, including things like photography, popular culture, living traditions, and even textile craft and design. And the curation is done dipping into all the six departments. How did you go about trying to assemble and curate such an enormous canon? Well, I was really aided by some great gurus that I found in my youth who really led me to these different um, domains of art and sharpened my eye towards that. It's thanks to them that I owe the little bit that I know. And, um, you know, it's also because India is so layered and we've really never segregated um, art that way. It's really more a Western concept of uh, craft versus uh, art or decorative arts and fine arts. In India, these things coexist and they're really enmeshed with each other. And I think that's quite a departure from the way other museums would look at it. Although today I would say many people have started mixing these things up a lot more, but it's, it's a new thing even in India because we pretty much followed what the system was at the time of the Raj. Why is it that India is only now getting its first museum in a decade? I wish I could say why, and I, I wish the answer was not quite uh, what it is, but we definitely need many, many more museums. Um, it possibly might be because there are so many things that India needs that art and culture has not got the focus that it should have deserved. But I'm glad to see that um, there's a lot of talk now about many such things coming. In fact, um, I think the government itself has announced a great push in the number of new museums that would come up and also museums with technology and stuff. How much support are organizations like yours getting in order to get up and running and not just open your doors, but to keep them open? You mean from the government or from uh, corporate India? Well, from anywhere, because sponsorship is notoriously difficult to get. And, one, one, and you know, what, we're interested to find out how much support that the government is giving you. Well, we have chosen not to take support from the government, but we have been supported a lot by uh, corporates, by foundations and by philanthropists and individuals here. So it's a very collaborative project. Uh, we've also invited people who have contributed substantially to us to join in as founders of the museum. So I'm happy to say I'm only one of the many founders of MAP. Abhishek Pura, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. That's all we have time for today's episode of The Globalist. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Laura Kramer, Marcus Hippie and Emma Sell. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parminchin, and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be with you at midday here in London to bring you the briefing and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow as well. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.